Welcome once again to another episode of the Random Access Podcast brought to you by RAPodcast.net. This is episode 219 recorded live for Tuesday, August 30th, 2011. It's a special episode. Dave actually went out and did some work at PAX, got some interviews, so sit back, relax, and enjoy the sounds of PAX. All right, so I'm here at the Razor booth with Rob. Robert Krakow. Nice to meet you, and do you work for Razor? Yep, I'm founder. You're founder of Razor? Oh, my God. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Um, so what can you tell me about the new Razor Blade? Well, it's really a pretty exciting concept for us. It's, uh, you know, you can see right here it's ultra-thin. It's about uh, less than one inch uh, thick. It's all aluminum body, so it's really lightweight. Um, it's, it's so it's borrowing a page from the MacBooks, then, well, with the aluminum body. Yeah, the aluminum body and the... The weight, of course, and the portability is really important. The uh, the UI is really unique on here. It really makes it special. On the right side, you can see that there's 10 additional keys. They're all programmable. They're all uh, LCD keys. And then there's a large touchscreen LCD touchscreen there that's also programmable. So you can you, you can do those, those basic defaults, you know, for arrow keys and, and for multimedia and so forth. But you can program in-game uh, commands. Uh, and uh, it's also... Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's open source, so uh, we'll have a developer's kit, we'll have an end-user kit, and it's going to be pretty interesting what we're going to see what the community can actually do with it. There's a, a lot of opportunity for innovation here. It's uh, quite, a, quite a unique product, uh, extremely powerful. Uh, it's running the, uh, the second generation of the Intel uh, i7, and uh, the GPU is, uh, is NVIDIA's top chip, 8, eight meg of RAM. Uh, it's pretty uh, pretty competitive in terms of a uh, of a. Uh, it's a bit of a powerhouse. It's very much a powerhouse. Uh, you know, we wanted to have a nice balance of power, weight, uh, portability, but also the, the I think the really unique story is uh, is the uh, the kind of the switchblade uh, design design uh, UI and. Uh, the switchblade is what you put on the right side? Yes, that's okay. what that, we call that our switchblade technology. We actually, I don't know if you're familiar with the switchblade, we introduced that at, uh, as a concept product at, uh, at CES last year, uh, or this year actually, I'm sorry, this year. This is still 2011, isn't it? It is. Yeah. So uh, anyway, we introduced that at, uh, at CES in, um, in a, at a handheld 7-inch model. I don't know if you saw it, but it was a, did at, not make it. at four, full 45 uh, key uh, uh, UI. Uh, it, the product is a concept product. May or may not make it, but uh, never. But we're actually using some of that technology from the Switchblade. Well, actually, the, actually, one best best product of uh, CES. Very nice. The best it, show. I, I'd say it reminds me very much of the Optimus Maximus. Exactly. Because yeah. it's yeah. LCD pro, uh, programmable. Uh, yes. So each of those keys can have a unique picture, whatever you want. Yeah, but if, if there's an icon in the game or in the application, uh, you can program that to... to now, I, I see it's running League of Legends right now, playing a video of Dominion. Uh, did you work closely with Riot? Did you give them kind of a heads up on this? Oh, yeah. We've been talking to a lot of the development community. Uh, uh, so they're just waiting for our SDK. Who else have you been talking to with this? Oh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Sony and... Uh, it's about anybody who uh, we work with. Uh, you know, we work with. Um, we have a, a, a with e, uh, EA on um, on Battlefield Three. Uh, we're working uh, with uh, uh, Lucas on, uh, on uh, the old 
public and you know people like that uh, probably see our uh, some of our other licensed products uh, over here too from uh, so we, we continue to work with the developer uh, developers on a lot of our new products how much is the SDK going to you said it's open source but is there going to be a cost with it or just you're handing it out no, no. are you worried about since it will be open any sort of uh, backdooring or uh, malware coming out for it no I don't think the mal will be much malware I mean I, we're always worried about you know what kind of junk can come out of it but there's also some really cool stuff that can come out of it too so that's our that's our only concern with opening source right? so we've been we've been pretty careful about we in fact this is the first time we've ever done anything like this uh, we've kind of kept it away from our competitors but we right. feel like this is going to be really difficult for a competitor to copy are you are you going to plan to license it to your competitors or is this going to be no, only razors only razor all right uh, one more question for you the press release that came out about this said it was the world's first gaming laptop uh, some guys over at the alienware booth might have something to say about that what do you have to say to them well you know it's, it's, that's a little bit of razor hype I think that you know I'm, I'm kind of uh, lukewarm about overhyping stuff I wish we wouldn't do stuff like that but you know we do it and uh, you know that's our marketing people they, they like to make a big splash uh, I like I'd rather wait and let the community decide and let, let the press decide whether it's phenomenal or not that shouldn't be our call Thank you very much. I really appreciate you yeah. taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, I hope I answered your questions. All right, so I am here with... Uh, my name is Christopher Tubor. Um, if you play you online, you might know me as CCP Soundwave. Uh, I'm the uh, lead designer uh, for the finance based part of EVE Online. All right. So I wanted to just ask you a couple questions, just talk about EVE Online. Uh, we've mentioned on the show many, many times, especially regarding uh, some of the, the more interesting scandals, things like that. Um, so to someone who's never seen EVE Online or watched it or listened to our episodes, uh, what is EVE Online? All right, so EVE Online is uh, a science fiction game uh, that's kind of in a sandbox environment uh, where we kind of encourage people to uh, build a lot of the content themselves. So uh, we have a lot of the set stuff like mining, mission running, all that stuff that people can get into. Uh, and then we have a very, uh, very loose uh, rule set for uh, stuff like the uh, territorial combat and so on. And um, it's kind of what you make of it. I just gave a, a half an hour presentation on how to scam an EVE Online, for example. Um, I figure that if uh, people can take anything away from PAX, uh, it's that they know that uh, if they want to make money, there's uh, 400,000 people just waiting to get ripped off uh, in EVE Online. <laughs> and you know what? It's just, uh, it's just about doing whatever you want. Like, if you want to go mine, go mine. If you want to sit in a station, uh, try to get people to buy your overpriced stuff, that, that, that's entirely up to you. It's basically just a science fiction sandbox. Awesome. Uh, you, you say players creating a lot of content. Does that include things like the ships? Does that include like systems or...? Uh, well, uh, to some extent. So, uh, in terms of ships, they don't create them from the ground up. We did have a contest uh, a while ago where people could design ships to get into you online. Uh, but apart from that, it's... it's uh, uh, it's mostly the industry part of it. So we have a really complex industry uh, part of you online for people that like the industrial and crafting gameplay. Uh, so I mean, uh, most of the stuff that's used by players in you online is made by players. There's no, uh, there's no purple loot you get from dungeons. Uh, it's uh, some guy that mines, produces, and then sells on the market. So uh, a lot of it's just built from the ground up, basically by the players. All right. So what do you have to say to the comment of Eve Online is the game for business majors? 
Uh, yeah, business majors, uh, software, uh, software people, uh, QA testers. Uh, the, uh, there's just a few. For some reason, a lot of lawyers too, which concerns me for for a lot of reasons. But uh, th there's like uh, some people that just seem to be everywhere. When we talk to people here at PAX, uh, we just run into so many people that say that they're. Uh, not as much their marketing people, but their their software testers and engineers play it a lot. But uh, but yeah, I could imagine that that at least for some of the banking uh, scams and for some of the industrial game pay, there'll be some uh, some business majors uh, playing it. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that's uh, sounds reasonable. Yeah. All right. So the scams recently came to uh, they've been going on since the game was kind of conceived and, and first run. Yeah. Uh, there were bank heists. There were things yeah. that. Um, but then you guys made the decision to allow the purchase of game time from in-game currency. Uh, well, kind of. So uh, you can buy game time uh, for real-life money just like any other game. Uh, but unlike other games, we have it as a physical item you can trade. Uh, so uh, you can buy game time from another player for in-game currency. Okay. So all of a sudden, these, these heists have actual real-world implications. Were you guys concerned about legal issues with that, or is that part of the agreement you sign when you, mm. you know, scroll down and click the I accept on the terms of service in EULA? So, I mean, in terms of emotional value, that's always been there. I mean, whether or not we've had, uh, we've had uh, the, the, the uh, Plexus, the license extensions that people buy for their accounts, uh, and before that, people sold stuff like that on eBay, or they sold time codes or whatever, so it, it exists in every, any game, basically. Uh, the thing for us is, of course, when you do stuff like that, there's a lot of legal issues, uh, but I mean, it doesn't uh, it doesn't have real monetary value because you can't take the money out again. So it's just putting money into it, basically. And that's, uh, uh, that's as far as I know, how, how the legal stuff works on that front. But I'm very bad with uh, internet spaceship law, so I may be wrong. <laughs> um, I've tried to get into EVE mm -hmm. twice. Mm -hmm. I've played the trial, and mm -hmm. I, I did like a one-month subscription at that yeah. point. And yeah. I, it was overwhelming. What advice do you have for new players who want to get into this game and mm. want to be a part of this, but mm. when you've got these mega corporations set mm. up with thousands of people, yeah. coming in from the ground is very hard. It is. It is. I uh, Actually, I played, uh, I played in the beta, and I thought it was the worst game I'd ever played. Like, I played the beta and just gave up. Like, I, I just promised that I'd never touch it again, and the turning point for me was really coming into the game uh, with a, a social group. So... Uh, the first time when I played in the beta, I played alone, I couldn't really figure out how to do it, and everything is just an uphill struggle. Uh, when I came in the second time, I came in with a lot of people I knew. I came into a big corporation with a lot of people, and I could ask questions. So, uh, getting into, like, never play EVE alone when you start. Always get into a group of people that can help you, teach you how to do it, uh, and, like, introduce you to all the different playstyles. Because we have so many playstyles uh, that cater to so many people, but it's just... Once you come in, it's a little bit overwhelming to, to kind of seek them out yourself. So uh, get into some social community, um, find some people to play with that can teach you the game, basically. All right. uh, you guys have the, the... There's a player group that is, I believe, elected from the pair, player base mm -hmm. to go to yeah. CCP and help not necessarily run or design the game, but have influence on the game. Yeah. So how does that work, and has that been successful? Yeah, I think so. I think we're on our sixth uh, Council of Stellar Management, it was called, the CSM. Uh, it is, is it seven or nine people? 
Uh, I don't quite remember. Uh, but it, anyway, it's, it's a good group of people that uh, sit for a year. Uh, they fly to Reykjavik twice. We take them out to FanFest as well. Um, and then there's a load of online meetings. Um, and they're kind of, they don't tell us what to do, uh, but they kind of give us advice. So it started out as a very, um, start out as a very kind of undefined project. So the first time we had them out, we kind of had to test the waters of what we could do. And, and we kind of have a very good framework now. It's, it's gone from uh, this group of players that we'd fly out, show something to some people we have a lot of contact with. So we have a CSM forum. Uh, for me, whenever we want to publish something, uh, we throw it out to them and they get to comment on it. Uh, sometimes we'll go by their advice and make changes and sometimes we won't. So they don't can't veto anything, uh, but a lot of their time a lot of the time the input is really uh, really valuable because you find out what's wrong before everyone else sees it. So uh, the feedback we get from them, uh, we get from six people instead of four hundred thousand, which is uh, a really, really great way for us to basically test stuff out. It's like a yeah, it's like a test it's the test for, realm. For, yeah, basically, for, for us developers, it definitely is. And uh, and they're usually, uh, if you get elected to this, you're usually very smart and very good at EVE Online. So it's people that know a lot about the game. Uh, it's people that have a, like a massive uh, massive knowledge about how things should be and what, what, what they're doing. So it's a good gr group of people to try it out on. And, uh, and uh, like, it's nice on the internet, but they fly out, and we see them for a week and hang out and stuff like that. And it's really cool. And there's some... Uh, they sit for a year, and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of returning faces. So some people that have been coming for years, basically. So it's it's really cool, and uh, I like that it's not someone we've selected. They're like basically elected by the community, and I mm -hmm. think that's uh, kind of cool. You have the for all the for all the talk about how much it's a sandbox. Uh, so is the election. I mean, they run real political campaigns. Some of these people spend a lot of money on it as well. Uh, have websites and then campaign managers and, and God knows what. I actually got hired just before the first CSM and I was going to run and I had t-shirts made that people were buying with my face on it for like a campaign. And wow. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty, pretty uh, Yeah, I know, I know. There's actually one of the guys I work with who used to play then who wears it to work now and then, which is kind of <laughs> cool. But yeah, they, they're, they're very, uh, very serious about it and that's kind of cool. I like it. It's a uh, so the good old slander and, and entertaining to watch on this at the same time. So useful and entertaining. How long do the campaigns usually run? I mean, it's it's a year position. So yeah. when do people start really campaigning for it? Well, so uh, a lot of them are like lifetime politicians, so they're always campaigning. But the official stuff runs for a month or two, I think. Okay. Uh, but I mean, there are some of them that are that basically. I don't think they really do much else in EVE Online these days than just uh, the politics, which is cool. I like having different roles in all, uh, like jobs for people. Now. I'm thinking about like actual campaigns and actual elections yeah. in the real world and yeah. kind of bringing this over. Yeah. I mean, is there cheating in the elections? Um, you, you have EVE yeah. as, as a very open system and yeah. you guys are, yeah. you seem to be rather proud of that yeah. with all the investment scams yeah. and stuff. Yeah. So are you worried about the elections? Are there ways to cheat in an election? I don't think, think so really. Uh, the entire uh, system is, is mechanically maintained by us so there shouldn't really be any loopholes. Uh, but there certainly... Uh, there's certainly underhanded tactics when it comes to campaigns and stuff like that. So uh, there's smears, there's uh, people using their alts to just uh, badger opponents. Some people, uh, some of the big communities have just like tell their people to actively go after some people. Uh, so it's, it's really very underhanded and dirty. But like official cheating, I don't think so. It's a... Uh, it's in a very strict environment. Uh, the developers can't vote, for example. Mm -hmm. We have no access to to how the vote's going, for example. So uh, I think the voting is an hour, or, or sorry, a week or a two-week period. During that period, we can't see uh, the current status of the votes or anything. So it's a it's a pretty uh, pretty closed-off system. So I'd assume no no cheating. Is the voting for the character or for the player? Uh, for the character. For the character. Yeah. 
So there'd really be, I mean, how many, I don't remember, is there a limit on alts you can have? Does every alt get a vote or does every account get a vote? Uh, well, so uh, it's just based on the character. You could run alts, I assume, but I don't think anyone has because the burden of running this is pretty much full-time. I don't think you'd be able to really run two successful elections. I'd be really intrigued. Uh, I don't think it'd be possible either. I think when you submit your, uh, your application, you have to send your, a copy of your passport when you do it. Uh, I think that would be diff difficult. But it would be intriguing if someone pulled that off. It would be kind of cool. An idea for a future mm -hmm, politician. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Another first for someone. Yeah. yeah. So what, again, because we always talk about Eve in terms mm. of the scams and the scandals, what is the, the most, kind of the nicest thing that you've seen in Eve Online? Because there's all this talk about pirates and people mm. losing this and people running away. Mm. So what's on the other end? What Have there been like charities in Eve? Yeah, there definitely has. I remember... Uh, back in 2006 or 2007, when we were when I was still playing, we were at war with another alliance, and uh, one of their leaders got hit by a car and broke his uh, broke his his legs or something. And everyone got together and actually sent him a gift basket to his hospital, which I think he was a little bit surprised by. But uh, th th there's a little bit of that, and there's always fan fest. Like mm -hmm. uh, it's it, people take E very seriously, but one thing we found out is that when people meet in real life, they're they're pretty jovial about it, and then, uh, and like, uh, there's some some cool friendships made when, when people actually meet up. So it is a very social game, and I think that's probably one of the nicest and warmest things that that comes out of it. So it's uh, yeah, there there's some nice people as well. The game is is very economics based. Hmm. Um, do you guys, as developers, go in and tweak the settings, tweak the drop? I mean, drops, quote unquote, when yeah. you mine an asteroid, yeah. is it? But yeah. Uh, is that varied based on the market to kind of try and keep it steady, or do you yeah. just let market forces work? Uh, so there, there's kind of two parts to that. We have uh, we have a central bank director, uh, which is an economist that we have hired to, to basically make sure that Eve's economy is stable. Uh, he's very hands-off. Uh, he doesn't really like to touch it. Uh, and if everything should go uh, uh, down the toilet, I'm, I think he might step in. But so far, he's not. He's just monitoring, seeing where it's going. Sometimes he'll give advice. Um, but there's the gameplay factor as well that will move resources around. Um, we're doing a lot of uh, changes to mining running. Um, we had a, a bit of a bad habit the past few years of injecting minerals into everything. So you could mine minerals, you get minerals from NPCs, they drop guns that you could reprocess into minerals. Uh, we're doing a bit of a shake-up there, and that's not necessarily a market thing uh, uh, in, in a very complex sense. It's just that we see that mining as a profession isn't viable financially anymore, so we're kind of trying to phase minerals out of different things. So uh, in that gameplay sense we do. Uh, in the in the financial sense, uh, Dr. Ao, as, as his name is, uh, doesn't usually interfere. It, it, Eve's economy hasn't been um, as bad as, as, as it is. But sometimes, uh, at the end of last year, he said that uh, inflation was on the rise and he, he'd recommend that we uh, cut a little bit on, on the ISK sources. Uh, and we made a, a, a cut uh, to some of those uh, in December, so so we do a little bit of it, but but not like on a massive scale. There's not not a lot of uh, not a lot of tinkering. It's just really amusing to me that you have an honest to god economist working on this thing. Oh yeah, um, <laughs> that's just insane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That'd be a great job. Mm -hmm. uh, he even does like a quarterly economic report that he sends out to. So. Wow, yeah. well, I could see its advantages. Serious business, always. Um, I had a question. I'm, I'm trying to grasp it back. Mm -hmm. So what what is the 
kind of the most outrageous thing you've heard of in the game so far? In-game or out-of-game? In, well, let's start with in-game. Uh, in-game, I think the most outrageous thing that's ever happened in-game was probably uh, the guy that disbanded the Alliance Band of Brothers and basically ended a war that had been going on for three years with just a single click. Uh, apart from that, the Phaser Inc. bank scandal that ran away with a trillion isk. That was the most recent one? Yeah, I think that was the most recent one. Uh, trillion isk is, uh, is a pretty... It was even, it was actually like 1.8 trillion. Yeah, I think so it was it might be. It was a, a massive number, and and that's pretty that's pretty damn crazy. Like some of that stuff is, is yeah, but uh, yeah. Okay, and out of game. <sighs> I think some of the craziest stuff I wouldn't really be able to say. Oh. I'll tell you once that's turned off. <laughs> <laughs> some Sounds of the good. Crazy stuff. Sounds happening. good. Yeah, yeah. Um. The the universe in Eve is mm -hmm. huge. Mm -hmm. Is it finite? No. Oh well, it's finite now. It's finite now. You can always just keep adjust adding. if we want to. Yes. Has it been fully explored? Not necessarily by one person. Uh, yeah, it has been fully explored. Um, actually, the last systems we added were kind of exploration content that was very difficult to get into. Kind of difficult to get into. It's really difficult to live in. Uh, but our latest numbers show that a lot of them are inhabited full time. So, like we kind of, kind of made it like as uphill as possible, and we didn't really think that a lot of people would live there. But you know, you can't really tell you players what to do. They'll just do right. whatever they want. We'll do so it. yeah. So I mean, but we can, and we we talk about it frequently about adding more systems. Um, but until we have like a very clear cut case of uh, we'll gain a massive advantage from it, uh, we won't do it. Uh, I. Uh, I think there was a, there was a, a kind of a directional change from Eve is like big, massive, and empty, and I very much feel that uh, Eve shouldn't be empty. Like there's nothing like if you're alone in a system, it's a little bit boring. I'd love to if there was five to ten people in every single system in Eve. So mm -hmm. it's unlikely that we'll um, that we'll add more. We might add co more content within those systems, uh, but in terms of just adding more systems, probably not. Like, okay. Um, yeah. Uh how, out of personal curiosity, mm -hmm. how long does it take, if anyone knows, to travel from kind of opposite sides? Oh. Because I remember just going a couple systems, yeah. it would take like 15 minutes. Yeah. Probably take you a few hours, and you'd have to start over a few times because you get shot. So the middle of the map is this relatively safe in Empire, but if you're flying from one end to the other, you'd have 0, 0.0 on either side, and you'd probably probably get you on. Zero point, that was the, the law enforcement level, basically. Yeah, basically, yeah. For, and, uh, yeah so uh, 1.0 is, is uh, completely safe. Uh, from uh, 0.4 and down to 0.0, it just becomes less and less safe. Okay. You mentioned that it, it is finite for now and that mm -hmm. you can keep adding. Mm -hmm. Have you added to it? Uh, yeah, we added in 2008 when we uh, did the uh, Apocrypha expansion. Uh, we added wormholes, which was 2,500 new systems, um, and uh, that is the last edition as far as I know. Okay. Um, well, actually, we have a part of space that's closed off to players. Really? Yeah. Is this the developer playground? It is, it is like, a, it's kind of a mythical uh, <laughs> alien race area that we kind of use for development, uh -huh. uh, and someday we'll open that up. But, uh, cool. Yeah, we'll see where it goes. But yeah, we, we, we talk about the new systems, and Undoubtedly, at some point, we'll have to have to uh, put some more in. How much bigger is it now compared to when it was released? 
not that much. So we added 0, 0.0 and then the wormholes in 2008. So it hasn't. We haven't added that uh, that much. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I really think that it adds much value value to have more space. Like I used to play. I used to play Planetside, and they added more. Uh, they added more mass at a time when they were losing subscribers, and that kind of detracted from the from the experience. I think. I don't think that you necessarily need more and more and more. I think you're basically just. It's a really short-term investment. If you add more space, you're kind of saying the game's going really well right now. But what about in two years? Like, is it just going to be empty, terrible, desolate? I don't. I don't necessarily like it. And I also think that there's so much value in having people uh, in the same space. So, like, we have um, we have these asteroid fields that have NPCs that you shoot. And let's say your system has ten of them. You have one guy that just goes from asteroid belt to asteroid belt and just kills everyone. And uh, there's, they usually only support one person, so there's one guy doing that, there's one guy doing it in the system over, and I think that's really boring. Like, I'd love if we could have like a massive, massive field of asteroids, and like four people could sustain themselves there. So you'd always, you'd not necessarily be doing something together, but you'd be able to see other people. I think that's really important. And uh, so, so I don't really like the idea of investing in space so people can be lonely. I mean, I just think I don't like that. I, I have to ask because you're all wearing this shirt. Eve Online says, "Ask me about the monocle." So yeah. I'm officially asking you mm -hmm. about the monocle. So I mean, I think it's just like a really classy way of playing games. So if you're sitting there uh, just, playing games, it doesn't make you better. It just makes you a little bit. Well, it doesn't make you better at the game. It just makes you better than your opponents. I see. So you can sit but, there. Well, but what if your opponent's wearing a monocle? Ah, clever, clever. I mean, you, you're, uh -huh. you're handing them out out there. That's true, that's true. You might actually... Thousands of people now have monocles. I, that, that's true. All right, you might run into someone else who's as classy as you, but there's only going to be 3,000 of you. The rest are going to be like a bit scrubs. A little less. Yeah, I know. I, I see. Just roll your eyes at them. <laughs> no, we actually introduced them as an in-game item as well. Really? Yeah, so we opened a virtual store, uh, and we had this in as the high price item. Uh, it was basically like a, a, a very expensive one uh, that people who really, really care uh, about customizing their avatar can buy and just get that extra value. So um, there was a bit of uh, controversy as well, so uh, some people were, were upset about the pricing, uh, so we thought it would be kind of funny to just hand them out because uh, you know a lot of people get them for free now. But. They're a cool little item. At least uh, don't stick as well as uh, I um, The subscriber base for yeah. Eve. Yeah. Are you allowed to give me rough estimates of yeah. active subscriber? Yeah. Uh, I think we're about 370, 380,000, somewhere around that range. Uh, okay. Hopefully close to 400. All right. Yeah. And it's been growing every year, so. That's what I was wondering. I mean, it. it I'm sure that with every scandal and news report that hits the, the very closed, and if you'll excuse it, inbred. Mm. Game site. Mm -hmm. I mean, we get all our news from the same places. Everyone else gets all their news. Yeah, so yeah. It, it is an inbred area. But mm. I imagine you're you get a bump in your subscriber base every time. Well, there's certainly a lot of people that come in and say, "I started because of this and this and this," and that was kind of my uh, kind of my angle when I did the presentation today. Like, there's a lot of people here that have never heard on of Eve Online, and I could go up and tell them uh, that they could log on and mine for hours and hours and hours. But I mean. Realistically, a lot of people get excited about all this this metagame stuff. They get excited about all the scandals and, and knowing that there's really a short, uh, really, really short distance from uh, starting him online and actually ripping someone off. I thought that was kind of valuable to teach people. All right. Well, I, th I think that's probably uh, a very good interview. Thank you very much for taking your time.
And right. it's been a much. pleasure. Yeah, definitely. Go for it. So the Jurassic Park game starts, um, well, you know where Dennis Nedry, who's the kind of the Newman character, he's stolen the, the Barbasol can, he's driving to deliver it, and he gets eaten by the dinosaur. Right. So we start with the people at the dock who are waiting for Dennis Nedry to show up. And uh, when he doesn't show up, they decide that they're going to go into the to the jungle and find him. And that's actually who these groups are. Okay. There's, there's three different groups of people in the game. There's these people looking for De- Dennis Nedry. The island is being evacuated, right? Right. Um, so there's a group of scientists who didn't make the boat, who are trapped on the island. They're trying to escape. And then Engine, after they evacuated all the personnel from Jurassic Park, has sent in um, kind of uh, a black ops team to try to get the park under control. Um, so there's this third group of people that are like these uh, big buff army guys who are coming in. Um, so these three different groups of people then kind of get together, their paths cross during the course of the game, and um, some of them make it out alive, some of them don't. So okay. the premise of the game. Uh, has this game been accepted by uh, the, the IP holders as canon at this point, or not? Um... I'm not sure if it's official canon or not. I mean, we're working really closely with Universal and Amblin on on everything we're doing. Um, But, like, why we were in the middle of all of this is when they started talking about JP4 and all that stuff. So, um, we're we're kind of a mixture of the movies and the books. Okay. And, um, so... Now, I'm I'm looking at the screens, and these are very, very, very close to the movie. Did you guys just sit down with a bunch of uh, screenshots and... Rebuild the whole thing? Yeah, it's a, it's a Steven Spielberg movie, so right. there's a lot, you know, we wanted to make sure it still felt like a big Jurassic Park movie, so this is the most cinematic game we've ever done. And uh, it doesn't matter what you're doing, if you're dialoguing or solving puzzles or there's big action sequences, it always looks like the movie. Uh, what's the release schedule like? Is this going to be episodic? Is it all in one go? So the game is four episodes, but we're doing it all in one go. Um, it's going to be digital on PlayStation, uh, digital on PC and Mac from TelltaleGames.com or Steam, and uh, digital um, on iPad. And then it's going to be a retail release at Xbox. No, go ahead. And that's because um, Telltale just became a, a official third-party Xbox uh, publisher, just, you know, like EA or anything else. Congratulations. Yeah, it was a big deal for us. And part of doing that is um, be doing retail games. So uh, we're bringing it out as, as a retail product for Xbox, and we don't want some people to have all the games and some people to have to wait. So this is one game that is it is episodic. It's in four episodes, but they're all going to be released at the same time in November. Okay, so at this point, calling it episodic is mostly just breaking up the story. Um, well, it's, it's our traditional episodic design style. So okay. each one kind of, each episode ends with a big bang and a, and a cliffhanger. And uh, so it's not like levels or chapters. Um, they're, each episode is kind of its own complete little story. Um, all right. But they're just all packaged together. It looks like it's a lot of, uh, if you'll pardon the phrase, quick time events. Mm-hmm. 
It looks that, that way. A lot of people, a lot of, and there are some things that are definitely a very quick time event-ish, but since we wanted the game to look cinematic all the time, um, and traditionally in the game space, the most cinematic things are quick time events and cutscenes. Yeah. But, um, like, this section over here is, would be a quick time event, but this section here is all exploration. It's all dialogue and puzzle solving, and, and uh, they're actually trying to find the barbasol hand there. Here's another puzzle section. So just at first glance, you really can't tell the difference between right. the cinematic quick time events and the cinematic puzzle solving. It's, it's very different than uh, most other games of the, the kind of contemporary period. Yeah. Where it really does look like you're playing through a movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's hard. You know, we've always been a storytelling game company and trying to figure out um, how to use every storytelling device interactively. And that's not just writing or dialogue. It's music, cinematography, composition, color, uh, everything. And if you want to bring all those things to bear to, to make the story impactful, uh, you know, movies, television, that's where all that uh, is most refined. So, how closely with uh, Universal did you guys work? Like, did they comment okay. on it as it was being produced? Oh yeah, or? very, very closely with Universal and Amblin. We've been, you know, we worked with Universal and Amblin on Back to the Future, um, and, and I developed a really good rapport with them. And uh, it's just all carried into uh, the Jurassic Park. Um, Telltale seems to have a habit of picking up more or less abandoned IP. I mean, you said they're they're talking yeah. about JP4, but Jurassic Park has hasn't done anything for uh, yeah. a couple of years. So is that going to be the trend from here on? Are you guys well, looking for original IP at some point? We'll probably explore original IP at some point, but we're we're a licensed game company. We love these licenses. And, you know, licensed games have, for years and years and years, really sucked. And we... we yeah, one of the things I, is, I as developers, we're like... We're like, why do they make a crappy license X game? We could do so much better with it. And we still have a long list of things that we think we could make really good games out of. So, I'm not suppose you could share some of that list. Well, the ones that we've announced so far, we got Walking Dead coming next, and that's contemporary. Uh, Fables is, is on the list, but then we have things like King's Quest, which are more nostalgic. Like the old um, Sierra games? Yeah, yeah. Oh, dear Lord. Yeah. If you guys pick up Space Quest, I... So we're, we're starting with yeah. King's Quest, and we might do some more Quest stuff after that. Um, so it's going to be a mixture of um, nostalgic and contemporary stuff. And, yeah. you know, like Poker Night at the Inventory is kind of original IP. Puzzle Agent is kind of original. Um, so, but I mean, really our passions are taking these licensed worlds and doing really interesting things with them. So, well, you guys do a very good job with it. Hopefully we'll, we're changing that trend that licensed games suck unless it's a Telltale game. And then they're, and then you're happy that it's a licensed game. You get, you get the Jurassic Park experience that um, is a lot more satisfying than anything else. So did you personally work on this? Yeah, yeah. How was it? I mean, like... Well, we're still working on it. Yeah. Polishing it up. Uh, this has been really exciting. It's the most ambitious thing Telltale's done to date. And uh, this this is this started about not with Jurassic Park, but is talking about like internal or original IP or storytelling, interactive storytelling. This started from an R and D project that we started about two years ago on on really um, how do we do player driven storytelling and, and how do we make it. This is the first game that you can die, right? Lots of deaths and, and how does it, so when you die, does the game end or do you get and this, knocked back? And this one, the game doesn't end. And, in this one, the game doesn't end. You get knocked back. Uh, in Walking Dead, uh, there's a lot more pretty dramatic things that happen, and the game just keeps going on. So. Do you 
Do you have an in-game measurement of completion? Absolutely. Uh, this one, this uh, has um, about 12 different sports sections in every episode that you can earn uh, silver, gold, bronze, silver, or gold medals with. Um, there's uh, uh, trophies for uh, you know uh, doing perfect on everything. There's trophies for finding every death in the game. There's a lot of really cool dramatic deaths where you get speared and eaten and, and stomped on by dinosaurs. Um, so there's a lot of um, replayability uh, aspects to it and a lot of scoring. All right. Uh what other, so, I mean, you, you mentioned trophies and achievements. What else can we expect as far as that? Uh, and then there's uh, some the usual kind of goopier tongue-in-cheek achievements for various things. But they're all those are all really narrative-based. So as you're going through the story, uh, it makes, you know, the achievement unlock pops up and it's, right. it's kind of cool. How many, like, how many playthroughs would it take to get basically everything? Well, you can play through the game start to finish perfect if, you, if you're good. Well, but, you're I mean, there's different endings. I assume there's kind of different endings yeah, based yeah, on the stats and stuff like There's uh, a couple of different endings. Um, those are relatively, uh, we don't want to make you replay the whole thing to see the different endings. So you can jump back a little bit and explore different options. So it's not um, as dynamically branching as uh, some of the stuff we'll be doing in the future is. But, um, you know, it's a big leap forward for us as far as interactive storytelling. I think I just saw on the screen a branch lift up by itself. I think there was supposed to be we're someone still, throwing we're it. We're still sweet. Couple bugs. Yeah, we're still polishing. All right. Well, it looks great. Oh, Congratulations. Yeah. I'm looking forward to this. Cool. Thank you. So, I'm here with... Mark Norris, producer on Dominion. Awesome. Right after getting my ass handed to me in a game of Dominion. Congratulations. It's incredibly fun. Well, thank you very much. Even getting my, the, the shit beat out of me, it was enjoyable. I'm glad you enjoyed it. We've been working hard on it for about nine months now, and we're in the wrapping up stages of it. So, you know, you saw a lot of things on the map. The map's pretty much good to go. We have a few things left for champion balance and, you know, a few things left to make sure that we're setting up all of our environments correctly. Got to get some tech hardware in place. But, uh, you know, we're getting it ready. All right. So, so can you describe some of the, the... I mean, it's the same mechanics. It's the same game yeah. behind it. So what's different between... I know it's different. They don't necessarily... What's sure. different between Dominion and just regular Summoner's Rift or Twisted Tree Line? Yeah, well, I think the big difference, obviously, is the capture mechanic, right? So when we were taking a look at what we wanted to do to evolve the MOBA genre, we said, what can we do that's radically different, you know? How can we take, you know, some great ideas from other other games and other game modes, you know, that have been made so far, and take a look at what we can take from those and implement into classic mobile gameplay. So, we took a look at capture and hold. We took a look at, you know, like team deathmatch type matches. We took a look at capture the flag modes. And eventually, we, just, we we sort of decided on it. We really think the capture and hold mechanics in a MOBA would work. So, that's really where the genesis of Dominion came from. We took a look at, played a lot of different games and decided we wanted to make a capture the flag mode. So, that's really the big difference, is that capture mechanic really changes the gameplay. And it changes the gameplay because it makes it a much more team activity. So at any time during regular Summoner's Rift, sure, you have team battles and you have team, team things that go on. But especially in the early game, it's a very individualistic game, right? You might not even have a team battle until 15 minutes in. In Dominion, if you're not getting into a major team battle in the first 15 to 30 seconds, you are doing something wrong. So, Alright. Um, 
so it, it's it's basically capture home points. Yeah. Which has been done a couple times. Uh, Warhammer did it right. in their RTS. Yep. WoW did it in Arathi Basin. Basin. Yep. Uh, DC Universe uh, Online did it in their yep. BVP. So I mean, a whole bunch of different games have used a similar mechanic. I think one of the things that makes our mechanics somewhat different from some of these other games is when we have a capture in our game, there's actually a little meter that goes around the capture point that indicates how much of the capture you've gotten to. So in other games, oftentimes when you get hit or you're interrupted during a capture, you have lost all progress on that capture. So it's almost like, damn it, what happened? God, why did I even start capturing that point? In our game, if you happen to defeat the defender of that point, so let's say you're capturing a point, a defender comes along and he smacks you or she smacks you, you turn around and you kill that defender. You can pick up that capture exactly where you left off. So if the capture takes ordinarily five seconds, you are four seconds in, it'll only take you one more second. And that's represented by, you know, the, the green capture mechanic or the red capture mechanic shown around the point. So that that sounds like a nuker would have a significant advantage then. What do you mean by that? Uh, because if I'm out there capturing a point, yeah. I'm a nuke. Someone yeah. walks up and drops the ice around, blast them to smithereens. It, now that would assume a couple of things. That would assume, first of all, that you can get close enough to the point um, that you can get close enough to use your nukes. Secondly, it assumes that... Um, where I'm trying to phrase this. So basically what you're saying is anybody with a big AOE who's capturing a point can turn around and attack the defender of the point and kill them. Not even an AOE. So, I mean, if you... Right. If you but here, here's the brand. problem with that. As soon as you break the channel, the tower's going to start shooting you. True. Right? So as you notice during your game, if you get interrupted during a capture mechanic, actually one of the best things is to get away from the point and draw that defender away because that defender is counting on you standing there and Getting shooting free. at him and hopefully trying to nuke him while the tower's just chewing you to pieces. That's so, true. Yeah. Um, it's a lot faster, I notice. Um, there's a, a significantly larger gold increase. You right. start with way more. Can you talk right. about that a little bit? Sure. So one of the things was, when we were taking a look at Dominion, we wanted people to get into the action faster. We took a lot of the... When we were, when we were evaluating Summoner Shrift, we took a lot of the best moments of Summoner Shrift, which we felt was that champion versus champion gameplay. And we said, that's what we want to make the focus of Dominion. So, a couple of things that we did was... we increased leveling speed. Basically, you will auto-level as you just play the Dominion map. You'll also, of course, get experience from killing minions and champions, but you will auto-level up. Another thing we did is we increased gold rate. So, every three seconds, or I'm sorry, every second you're getting three gold. The other thing that we did, as you mentioned, was you start the game with 1,375 gold, and that allows you to get a couple of items so that you can get ready for that big fight that's going to happen in the first 15 to 30 seconds. Now, strategically, do you think it's better to grab one large item or a bunch of tiny ones? I think it really depends on your champion. I mean, just in all honesty. So we, we banned a couple of things from the moat. So you can't buy elixirs, right? You can't buy wards. So you can buy potions still. So, you know, you got to kind of make a determination as, do you want to go speed first? Do you want to build an AP item first? Like, what do you want to do? If you're playing Poppy, do you want to buy Sheen? Do you want to buy Boots? Like, which way do you want to go? You know? So some of that will depend on the strategy of the map. And that's why we believe Dominion is so incredibly both strategic and tactical. Those moment-to-moment gameplay moments, like when you decide on where you're going, that's a tactical point, but what your team is going to do in terms of strategy going in, that's huge as well. So, Valve has been kind of leaking and showing it's not even leaking anymore, it's outright they broadcasting. Game. They got a game. Right. How do you guys feel about that? Well, we're, obviously Valve is an incredibly successful corporation and a lot of us play their games, right? So they have good games. We're excited to see what they bring to the mobile space. Alright, cool. Well, I'm glad that it sounds like it's a friendly competition then. Always is. Um, okay, back to Dominion. 
what's next? I mean, we yep. we talked. You and I talked about spectator. We talked about sure. replay. Yeah. Is there more? I mean, you guys. I'm sure you guys have tons of stuff in the pipeline. I there think. is. Like we have a giant backlog of things that we want to do with League of Legends. We want to continue to evolve this game. We want to continue to be what we believe is the best game in the mobile genre, right? So that means doing more stuff. But that means first of all taking a look at what our fans think, right? What our players think. So a lot of what Dominion is came out of some guidance that you know we talked with fans at conferences, we looked at the forums, we took a look at what people believe, you know, are the best parts of League of Legends Summoner Drift. We're gonna do the same thing again. We're gonna take a look at what people love from Dominion and we're gonna go from there. Cool. Uh, are you looking at other things for inspiration? So are you gonna try and kind of come up with your own? I mean, three three rules for being a good game developer, right? Just completely honest. Number one, you gotta play your own game. If you're not playing your own game, you have no idea what the players are playing. Number two, you have to watch other people play your game. Because you think you know how players are playing your game, you have no idea unless you're watching them, right? And then the third thing is you have to play everyone else's game. So absolutely we draw inspiration from other, uh, from other developers. Cool. Out of curiosity, I have a math background. Do you guys have any statisticians on, on call, on deck, working on the we balancing a, issues, things like that? We have a business intelligence group that, that basically, whenever I want to get a stat, whenever I want to take a look at something, we do, we carry a lot of stats. In fact, I mean, if you take a look at our rank games, right, there's a number of stats that get taken there. We know, you know, magic uh, damage taken, magic damage done. You know, we know how many characters have been played in the last week. You know, we know how many times Renekton's been played. You know, so, like, we have a good idea. We keep stats on all that stuff. And that's honestly the way that it should work. We should take what the fans say and the players say, and we should take the stats, and we should combine those two things to come up with a holistic picture. I'm trying. I'm struggling to keep coming up with questions here. I mean, you guys have done such an amazing thing. League of Legends is like three and a half, four years old. I think only three years, isn't it? Well, I mean, it depends on how you look at the beta date, right? Like, right. it's been around a little while now. But yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's been live for a couple of years. So, And it has grown to be the single most popular game in America. And we're extremely pleased by that and very humbled by our players and our fans. So, are you worried about other games taking your players? Or you, I mean, because it's a free-to-play, you just... You'll always have people. I think in one sense you always worry about that, right? Like you always want to be cognizant of every other game that you know might be making a game in the space. At the same time, you also want to be confident about the things that you're doing with your game because we do listen to our fans. We truly believe that Riot is the most game or I'm sorry, the most player-centric company in the world. And I think we show that, right? I think we take suggestions. We show up to conferences and events like this, and we really play service to the players and the fans because that's who we are, right? We're players of the game. How's the tribunal system working out? It's working out really well. It's working out really well. So we're happy with the results that we're seeing from it. Um, we're going to continue to look at it and refine it as we go along as well. Have you seen a, a notable decrease in offenses in reporting or an increase in reporting but a change in what they're reporting, things we're, like that? We're actually trying to compile a lot of those statistics now. We know for a fact there's a lot more reporting happening. What we want to be able to make sure is, is that the reporting's going the right way. So we think that all that's going well, um, but we want to take a look at statistics to make sure that that's actually happening. Well, I think that's probably, I've taken up enough of your time. I really awesome. appreciate you taking the time to talk. Yeah, man, me. no problem at all. It's been a lot of fun. Appreciate it, appreciate it. Okay. Hopefully they'll pick up most of this. Um, so you guys have revealed your new product, which is the Razor Blade. What do you want to say about what news would you like the least about it in the first place? I think the, there's really three areas that are really unique, important about it, first of all. Um, 
been open to an event or, or travel to a friend's home or to a land party or wherever they're going. Um, so the, the, the airport, the fact that it's it's so lightweight and it's so portable and it is made so well with the aluminum unibody construction that I think what you're going to uh, find is that it's going to appeal to anybody who, who really values safety and portability. Uh, the other thing that we want people to know about is performance. Obviously, it's really designed for a very, very high performance. Uh, the uh, I think when when the product is actually out, because some people are actually questioning, you know, why you didn't why we didn't use a, uh, a four quad uh, processor instead of we, we select a dual quad. For what we're doing for the kind of gaming that we're, we're anticipating people using for this, the dual quad is much more efficient. It's actually more powerful, and uh, in many cases, uh, I think the the people who, who simply say. the number, the better performance isn't always right. So in this case, they're actually wrong. Um, but what we're waiting to see is, you know, when the independent third-party benchmarks come out, then come back and tell me that we did this wrong, right? Then, uh, for, because there are some really, really unique things uh, within the technology of the product. For example, the keyboard itself is uh, full anti-ghosting. You can press all 80 keys at the same time. You could bind all 80. Well, nobody would do that, but you could. Uh, the uh, the fact that it's all that, that every key is completely programmable, and can, you can write unlimited macros, and you can edit them in the UI. You know that really is unique. So there's a lot of really really unique things in here that, from a technology standpoint, uh, we may or may not be getting credit for. So so performance obviously is very very high. So and the third thing, of course, is is the uniqueness of the uh, the um, uh, UI uh, portion of it. Uh, the switchblade. Yes, the, sweet, the switchblade technology is pretty advanced stuff. Um, it is uh, it is really highly individually programmable. Uh, people can do a lot of really cool things with it, and um, we are actually making it available uh, as SDK to uh, to developers so that soon, if not or sooner or later, all every major game will be supported with, you know, shortcuts, maps, uh, stats, uh, mini-maps, uh, quest maps, you know, and all the other things that, it, that make the game enjoyable. So you, it can give you a little bit of an advantage within the game itself. So those are really the three important factors that, that we want people to know. Now, we are getting hit a little hard on price, but this isn't meant to be a budget laptop. I, I think what really happened to the laptop notebook category over the last three years is kind of interesting if you look at it. Three, four years ago, you know, the high-end uh, laptop makers, I'm not going to mention any names, were making three, four, three, four thousand dollar units. And they were really, really high-end and they really, really performed. Um, today, those same makers are making twelve, thirteen hundred dollar units and they don't have the quality that they used to have. They don't have the performance they used to have. So they, what, I think what they did was they kind of, they created performance based on a price 
price. And of course, there's no secrets, there's no free lunch. So you're going to get what you pay for. Right. And if you if you bought a $2,800 system three or four years ago, you would get $2,800 worth of value. And today, if you buy the system for $1,400, you're going to get about $1,400 worth of value. So what we've done, I think, initially is with, uh, is we've dumbed down the, the category of, of laptop system, and uh, we've made it so that it's, uh, I don't know if we're trying to compete or our idea is to compete with consoles or, or whatnot. I mean, I don't mean Razor, but I meant the industry itself. Uh, I think that's that's a mistake. There are, there's always a need for a high-quality trade-up product. This being our first product in the category, we wanted it to stand out. So we put everything we could into it. We didn't start off saying, let's build a $2,800 laptop. We said, let's build the best laptop we can make that it stands aside, that gives people the quality and the expectations that they should have from a mobile game, or mobile gaming, I guess. So that was our that was our goal. Now, what will our second, third, fourth, fifth product look like? I guarantee you they will, we will be more more sensitive to people's needs, but this is really to make make a breakthrough. Uh, it's analogous to our first mouse. I don't remember if you remember, but our first mouse was a $100 mouse. $100 1998, we came out with a $100 mouse. And everybody said, oh my God, a $100 mouse. And they started running running away from us, right? Uh, then we, we uh, when, the, when the actual the reviews came out, word of mouth came out, they said, well, this is worth every penny. And all of a sudden, people started buying it. Uh, our second mouse was not a $100 mouse. It was a $50 mouse. Our best-selling mouse of all time is the Death Adder, which is a $59 mouse. So we don't really intend on this being the last of the best. Right. Um, you, you've done a very good job kind of heading off all of my questions so far. I expect you've done this about 30 times today alone, let alone yesterday. Um, I, I want to ask about the Switchblade technology, the, the touchscreen and the eight programmable keys, and what is the future of that? Is that? I saw there was an independent keyboard out there which is priced at, I think, $250-ish. Uh, is that going to be coming out in more products? Is that going to be coming out as a standalone USB edition? What's going on with that? Well, I don't, um, you know, we, we rarely ever talk about what we're working on, but yeah, you're going to see other, uh, I mean, that's, we think that that is a technology that has some legs to it. We think that people are going to enjoy it. We want to get to the point where we're actually opening the source code and allowing gamers to create their own. Yeah, they'll create some crap, but they'll, be, they'll create some really phenomenal things. And then we want to open that uh, up to the community, let them enjoy it kind of like a Winamp setting, you know. So I, I see I see that having some real legs. Uh, it's not cheap to make. It's a fairly expensive. By the way, it's actually 10, 10 bucks, not 8. You said 8, but oh, <laughs> that's okay. 10 bucks. Yeah. Going off of memory. But it's, a, it's start, you know, uh, I mean, it's a start. Um, it's going to be interesting to see where we can take that technology. And I would imagine that if we are at all successful with it, that there will be some copies. So it'll be interesting to see where our friendly competitors go with it too. I wish them luck. <laughs> uh, 
have you gotten any responses from your competitors yet? Well, mostly groans and moans and, you know, I mean... Jokes about the price point. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a few of them online. Actually, you know, we have some uh, really, really friendly competitors that we actually talk to on a regular basis. We actually don't really see uh, or think of Alienware, for example, as a competitor. We do business with them. They're our friends. Um, we have a long relationship with them dating back to the 1990s. Back when it was Alienware and not Dell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that, you know, that all, everything changes, but um, but good news is, is Razor's still just Razor. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm just going to think, like, Steve Jobs just resigned. Maybe Razor could start looking at doing stuff with Apple. You know what? Yeah, that was kind of surprising, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, what was... You, you're coming out with a line of keyboards, which are mechanical keyboards, targeting back to the Intel... Uh, not Intel, the IBM Model M. Yeah. What was the thought process behind that? Well, um, some of us are rather old and remember those days. <laughs> um, but we... We wanted to actually the objective there was to control the uh, the, re the response time, the lift, and uh, and uh, and rebound of the keys on the keyboard, so that you had a very definitive, uh, you know, not only uh, physical sensation but audio sensation, so that you knew you clicked, you knew that, it, uh, and. I think probably our association um, with StarCraft and, and doing uh, developing a, a StarCraft keyboard that was a membrane keyboard, which wasn't a bad product, but uh, you know how in, uh, in that genre you're rewarded for actions per minute, and we wanted to uh, see if we could actually improve and increase the APM, uh, particularly through the keyboard. We've done a pretty good job with our mice because we use a, a very, uh, very, very specific we're very, very particular about our uh, the uh, the, uh, the buttons and the micro switches uh, in the in all of our mice. So we we felt we had, we had a pretty good uh, solution to improve APM in mice, but we wanted to see if we could do it in a keyboard. Mechanical was really something that uh, intrigued us. Uh, and uh, we, we spent a, almost a year just testing the different, uh, you know, uh, switches and uh, uh, mechanical switches that uh, we could use from the cherry, cherry browns, cherry black, cherry blues, cherry red. We tested them all. And we actually sat on the blues because we felt that that, that gave us the most definitive click. You can actually, uh, one of the things that's really interesting about the mechanical keyboard is you can actually rest your fingers on the keyboard and it won't set it off. As opposed to some of the really super sensitive uh, memory keyboards, which are uh, inconsistent in the, you know, over over time. For example, a memory keyboard usually is tested for about 20 million cycles. That's about two to three years of constant constant use. Uh, the uh, mechanical is about 50 million cycles, so it's about two and a half times uh, better better wear more quality and but more importantly is that it's two and a half times more consistent and it's it 
Mozart's response. So you get the same response to every key for virtually the life of the keyboard. Um, all of our testing, you know, we, you can never really, you know, absolutely re replicate humans with machine when you're testing, but all of our testing indicates that it's going to give people five to ten years of really, really consistent uh, response. So that's probably the most important thing of a mechanical. It takes you a little while to adapt to it, maybe an hour or two, but once you adapt to it, it's almost almost impossible to find a, uh, a membrane that's, that's even satisfactory. Of course, we make a lot of membrane keyboards, so I can't... Right. <laughs> you don't want to trash it too much. Yeah, I don't want to trash it too much, but I would never use one. <laughs> Alright, well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Um, I wish you the best of luck with the Razor Blade, and especially with the Switchblade technology. I really hope to see it in more things, and good luck on the new market. Thank you, it's my pleasure.